Who the bloody hell's that? Should indeed. You're listening to the Corona Diaries, a sometimes random and often irreverent attempt to understand the psyche of singer Steve Hogarth. Hello and welcome to Chapter 54 of the Corona Diaries. And a very sprightly Steve H is 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 on screen. He's looking fit and ready to go and pumped, I would almost say. I've just spotted a woodlouse crawling across my carpet at the corner of my eye. Anyway. That sounds like a fish lyric. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, it does just us. <laughs> <laughs> on the subject of funny things, you sent me a photo. You sent me a photo the other day of the Rat Pack. <laughs> I did. And I thought, what's he doing sending me a photo of the Rat Pack? I thought it's very nice, but I've seen the Rat Pack before. But the, And it was only on the second glance I realised that it's not the Rat Pack, is it? No. No, it's us. <laughs> it's the band as the Rat Pack. Yeah, don't I look like Bob Mankos? <laughs> it's really, it's a truly disturbing photo, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. It's got it's got a whiff of the League of Gentlemen about it. <laughs> yeah. if, if I'm being honest, I think I'd mentioned it to you once in the past, and then I just <laughs> I, think you did. I found it. I thought, oh, I'll send that to his lordship. <laughs> you ought to put it on. You ought to put it on your Instagram feed. But then I'll get. I'm going to get told off for nagging. So maybe I'll put it on mine. Oh yeah. No, I'll let me put it on mine because I can never think of what to put on mine. It's right. a really low res image. I don't know if it'll work but might so be all right on a phone wouldn't it that'd be fine on a phone it's definitely worth sharing <laughs> it's, it's a, a bit of a curio whilst being a little disturbing <laughs> it's amazing if you paste my face onto the back onto somebody's head i look i suddenly look like bob monk house yeah <laughs> it's not quite as bad as those awful uh we buy any car dot com adverts where they <laughs> photoshop Philip Schofield to some guy, you know, doing gymnastics. They're truly terrible. Um, I don't want to offend anybody though, because we did have to, you know, we did have to black Pete up to to for the Sammy well, Davis Junior. You, you, you were you? you? Yeah. And height wise, he was probably the right height. Yeah. No, it was. It was Sammy a good Davis laugh, was the but... smallest of the Rat Pack, wasn't he? He was indeed, yeah, and arguably the most talented. Mind you, you know, Frank wasn't a bad singer. Oh, Frank could warble. Yeah. Frank could warble. Frank was uh, and Dean just did what he did, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Got pissed. Um, before we start on to the main order of business, there's there's been quite a big update with regard to tour dates and conventions. Ah, yes, they have. Yes, the good, the bad news, the bad news, and the good news, and the good news. Yeah. 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 No ugly. Um, <laughs> we should have had ugly news, shouldn't we, to go with the good news and the bad. I just never thought of it or I would have banged it. <laughs> what a time to think of that. I know. The I know. ugly news. That would have been really clever. <laughs> <laughs> you could have popped up and done the little the little whistle at the end. <laughs> so oh, well. was that a tough decision to come to? I, I suppose, you know, pragmatically and financially it, it makes all sort of sense, but it still must be a, a, a tough decision to come to. Yeah, the, in a way, Port, the Port Zealand decision was easier because it, it's absolutely, you know, it would sink us if we if we mounted that convention and then two weeks out the Dutch government locked down, mm. we really would be screwed, um, and you can't insure against it. Nobody will will provide insurance against that eventuality. So. There was no way of doing it other than taking a risk to the tune of, you know, best part of a million quid, yeah. um, which we we just couldn't afford to do. Um, so we can do the others because 
we're not in for financing the others up front. They're done through promoters and whatnot, and obviously there's no accommodation included in those. So that's not nearly so much of a, of, of a financial burden for us. So we've left the others in for next spring, and we're pretty confident they'll happen. Mm. We're pretty confident Port Zealand could have happened, but we just couldn't risk. No. Uh, we've all seen for ourselves how this pandemic has a, a habit of hanging around, um, how the um, virus seems to mutate into slight other forms. So even 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 the vaccine, although all the data looks fantastic, nobody's really totally, totally fireproof. We may be fireproof, but we're not future-proof. No. Um, so that was a drag, but it was an easy decision because, you know, it, 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 was, a, it was the obvious thing to do. Um, kicking the European tour back a year was a more difficult decision because that's one of those situations that's changing daily and it may well be that we could have done it uh, come the autumn. But the promoter was nervous. Um, they didn't want to do it. They were happy to go ahead with the UK. So we're really in the hands of fate, really. It wasn't so much of a decision that we had to take. And, I mean, did I read the other day that Oktoberfest has already been cancelled again for this year? Yeah. Um, so that gives you some indication of what of how the thinking in Europe is anyway. I just don't uh, think that they're ahead of the curve enough with the vaccine in Europe. No. That's the problem. If they'd kind of rattled through the, the same percentage of the population as we have, I don't think it'd be a problem. But they've faffed about, haven't they? And yeah, yeah. It's, it's certainly, you know, it's, it seems bizarre to say it, but we do seem to be a lot further on and they do seem to have done, you know, not, not had a good vaccination programme. So, it's it's uh, the one thing so we've done right, isn't it? And I'm yeah. sure the government will take credit for it, but it's probably the person who should take credit for it is probably some man or woman who you've either never heard of or never will, who planned it all in advance, got their shit together, and whoever that person is, we should all buy them a drink. Thank you, whoever you are. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Indeed. Right, well, we're... we're Second part of last week, or the other bit of Mexico from last week. So mm. just to get everybody back up to speed, what we did was we split some diary into into smaller chunks and then we were going to have a bit of diary and then have a natter and then have another bit of diary and have a natter. So we did a couple of sections last week and we're going to do a couple of sections again. Hurrah. So in a minute, I'm going to pass over to Ooh. Steve H to read the first section of diary and he's going to take you through the second half of Friday the 2nd of September. So in the morning... You'd 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 popped up a pyramid. You'd uh, <laughs> and you'd, you'd taken a decision not to introduce yourself to an artist and a boxer. This is true. Um, so we'd 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 done that, uh, or, or 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 even take an inhaler uh, along with you on a on a bit of a uh, you know a bit of a leg stretch. So we've done that. So we've got the second half of Friday, which is you leaving the Hard Rock. And heading to the venue because obviously we've got the reason for being in Mexico is that night, isn't it? Which is the the gig, the National Auditorium, yeah, my favourite so, room in the world. Uh, now, when we come back, one thing I have managed to do is dig out the set list as well. So when we start talking about a few uh, questions, I've also got the set list, which might help us when we piece together because it was fun packed, shall we say? Was it? Good. Uh, well, uh, that, well that, that's that's the feeling I got from reading the diary this morning. Mexico is always amazing. I mean, a great, great crowd there. Phenomenal. Right. So we'll we'll have a little bit of your tinkle on the piano, and then you'll read the second half of Friday, and then we'll come back with a bit of chatter. Okay. Here we go. Tinkle, 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 tinkle. <coughs> I could, you should you should leave that in. Friday, 2nd of September, Mexico City, continued. 
returned to the hotel and tried to sleep for an hour, to no avail. People kept arriving with baskets of fruit and the phone kept ringing, voices saying, Hello, Steve, do you remember me? We met two years ago. Can you remember my name? Etc. I couldn't. I gave up around five and walked over to the National Auditorium across the road to see how the crew were getting along with the show. The day took a bit of a dive at this point. Some of the hired backline still hadn't turned up. The drums were missing a tom-tom and the PA and monitors weren't yet working. My God. I reeled under the realisation that here, at my favourite gig in the world, we weren't going to get a sound check to speak of. Steve R said the amplifiers they had supplied him were, quote, basically knackered, unquote, and that his stage sound was the worst of his career. We had bought a new monitor man, John, for this show, who, although capable, had never worked with us before. Some of Mark's gear was wrong, half of Pete's bass rig had yet to arrive. Alan Parker was still focusing the lights and was running two hours late, and Priv, barely masking a face which nonetheless betrayed utter exasperation, simply said, don't ask, as I approached to say hello. And there were already a few thousand people queuing down the street. I sat down in the catering area and tried to come to terms with the bitter disappointment of the situation. I've looked forward to this gig ever since the last time we played here two years ago. It was one of my favourite shows and I'd hoped that we could maybe even beat it tonight. That possibility seemed extremely unlikely as I sat in the dressing room at 7.15, 30 minutes to doors, listening to Priv finally EQing the PA something that normally would have been done before we arrive at four in the afternoon. We finally managed to line check before we were forced to leave the stage as the doors were opened and the 8,000 strong audience filed in. It was already only 30 minutes to stage time. I prepared myself mentally for the show, determined to do my utmost to overcome the myriad problems and give these people the show they surely deserve. Moments before walking on stage, we were told there was no intro tape. This threw me into further disarray as I stomped on to sing Cover My Eyes, unable to hear much from the centre wedges. The crowd erupted as we struck up, and I got that Bono feeling again. Maybe they would carry us through this. Maybe Priv and Alan would defy the laws of physics and probability and make it sound and look great. As it turns out, that's just what happened, but not before an additional setback. When I went to the T1 to play the opening movement of Brave, it became clear that there was a fault, and at no time during the set did the bloody thing murmur a note. We even managed to get round this at the critical moments with a combination of Mark's on-the-fly reprogramming and me singing Murder on the Street a cappella from the centre mic. During the second song, Slange, I made the mistake of forgetting about my knee injury and threw myself down onto them, with the resulting pain which can only be compared to a cattle prod in the kneecap, setting back whatever healing may have taken place since Switzerland. At the time, though, my legs were somewhere down the list of my worries. The whole experience was a bit of an Apollo 13 but the crowd saved us spiritually by generating a vibe only just short of mania. I began to suspect that Alan was well on top of the situation when the entire crowd let out a gasp at the dramatic lighting change for Tell Me I'm Mad. When I came off stage to change for Brave, John A was in the wings to tell me that the sound out front was great. Priv's a bloody genius. My voice held out well for the set, which was up at around two and a half hours, and I still had a little headroom left during the space which closed the show. We all came off stage dazed, confused and disappointed. I cheered up considerably when Priv and Alan appeared and announced that the sound and lights had been terrific, more or less, throughout. The altitude of this city certainly seems to make a difference. I was completely exhausted and could barely stagger along the corridor to the shower. We returned to the hotel by minibus, 
and I went to bed without reviewing the day's events in my head before passing out. I didn't have the energy to relive the trauma or the thrills. And we're back. Uh, And that was Friday the 2nd of September. And I'm going to go straight in with the question that we're all probably thinking. Um, I got the impression from the diary that it was only that afternoon that you started to have suspicions or issues, suspicions about the issues or what have you, an idea that the gig had issues. Mm. Is that right? Did you really not know until you arrived at the venue that that it was looking a bit... No, we'd no idea. We'd... um... We knew we'd hired equipment and we knew it was coming. And that's true. True, we had. And it was. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, we rather hoped it would be there in time for the gig. <laughs> um, I didn't know there was any anything wrong until I physically, personally rocked up at the gig, uh, went to catering, and I think I ran into one of the crew in catering and said, oh, how's it going? And they went, not very well. And what's up then? Well, at the moment, we haven't got a drum kit. Uh, we haven't got any guitar amps. We haven't got your keyboard. Uh, and the PA doesn't work. <laughs> I went, all right. And there's 5,000 people queuing in the street. <laughs> holy jesus christ um i see so as the day wore on it was quite funny because the drum kit arrived the drum kit arrived one drum at a time and each one was a different (laughs) color (laughs) so yeah yeah what one yellow tom-tom would arrive and about an hour later a purple one would show up (laughs) And they were all coming from, you know, different blokes in Mexico City who'd been who'd been kind of press ganged into into removing a tom tom from their kit and sending it to Ian. Um, so bit by bit, the drums arrived one at a time in various colours, and then at some point, um, Rothers, um, the the guitar backline arrived. Rothers plugged into it and declared that it was basically shagged. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I think just before we went on stage, I used to use a thing called a Korg T1 at that point, which was just a big sort of weighted, weighted pretend piano um, and MIDI controller. Um, stop me if I'm boring you but that arrived just before I went on stage and nothing came out of that all night you know I sat down and nothing happened when I when I when I played it so I went boom to play the beginning of staring out over the bridge nothing uh right so I thought "Mm, center mic for me then tonight so I just went down front center Mm. Anything that I was supposed to do, piano and voice, I just did a cappella. Um, yeah, it literally was just like that. So I'm, I'm there, you know, dressed up as a, dressed up in me in me priest garb, you know, with me hair ties around me, wrist and all, all that, you know. Um, thinking, well, I'll just do it all from the middle, mm. and and I did. So all the bits. I normally play on the piano weren't an option. Um, so it was very raggy arsed. Could As Mark perf- cover for some of that then? Like, so because you would you you'd sit and play Hollow Man, wouldn't you? That that was you'll normally sat down for that. Yeah, what did I do about that? I think Mark managed to program me a piano. Right. During the first half of the gig, like I mean, he, he'd already got a lot to do. But somehow, in between all of that, he managed to get me a piano that I could I could play from the T1. It was yeah. putting out MIDI. Mm. Um, and I did manage to do that. Mm. So uh, as far as I can recall, I think we did do that. Unless we just um, cut the song from the set. I can't honestly remember now. I think yeah, because you could I think theoretically cut Hollow Man, couldn't you? 
theoretically, it doesn't link to anything else. You could theorize. I mean, I'm not saying. I mean, you know, rips rip rips a hole in the middle of brave, but <laughs> could have theoretically cut the whole thing. Um... <laughs> <laughs> I was <trying> to... <laughs> yeah, all right. and done blues in D, uh, but it's um... that spinal tap moment. <laughs> but anyway, we got. I mean, as I said in the diary, the the crowd were just so up for it. Mm. Um, Priv did get the PA to work just before the doors opened. I think I I, I think he had both sides of the PA working. Um, and was actually checking kick drum at um, seven thirty when the when the doors were opening, and that should have been going on at four thirty. Well, no, no, four in the afternoon, half three. So we were well adrift. So it was all a bit tense. I probably drank more tequila than usual. <laughs> but hired, surely hired in gear is that always such a gamble? Uh, Does it depend on the country? It's always a gamble uh, because equipment, you know, higher equipment by its very nature is gets a lot of use. Yeah, three hundred and sixty-five days a year or thereabouts, and it's used by people who aren't that careful with it because it's not theirs, um, which is all fine provided there's a really rigorous maintenance regime in place at the hire company and more often than not there isn't and i think in um normally in mexico we hire equipment that it comes from texas they drive it down from texas which is a bit of a drive um because there are hire companies in houston um there aren't a lot of hire companies in mexico city and and of course our our equipment list is a bit rarefied. Mm. You know, uh, Rod has needed two JC-120s and they, I think they scoured Mexico and Texas for for two of those. But he's about were, the only person left on the planet using them. Well, yeah, but that's, you know, that's good. Mm. Um, but they were buggered when they arrived, mm. so I don't think they were terribly useful. And... Um, you know, something like a Korg T1. I mean, it's a miracle they got one at all. But they did mm. get one. It's just that it didn't work. It didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> so it is always risky to hire higher equipment, even in even in the really super civilized in you know in inverted commas parts of the world. You know, places like Germany, where they tend to. You know, Germans tend to have their shit together. It's just a, a national characteristic. Um, they fix stuff. They maintain stuff. The stuff is usually of a pretty good standard in the first place. But then there are other parts of the world where it's just not that readily available uh, and you sort of have to cobble it together f- by making a lot of phone calls and pulling favours. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's what... What tends to happen in in Mexico, in South America, to some extent, at Istanbul, places like that, you know, it, it can get a bit racy. <laughs> Could you? Can you distinguish a normal day? So a normal gig day, there's going to be there's going to be stuff going on. There's always going to be something that's not quite right. But is it? Do you now easily distinguish between? That's just a normal gig day. That's just what goes on, and it'll come together and it'll be fine. With, oh shit, this really is tight. When it's time for the doors to open and the PA's still not working, <laughs> that's a giveaway. That doesn't take a lot of distinguishing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I hate to keep going on about Italy, but but in italy everything is screwed until the last minute and then it always seems to come together yeah. you know literally with seconds to spare i've noticed that over the years every every time we play italy you think this is never going to happen and it always does um you know and you can always do something anyway whatever problems you've got but 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 in Italy, it tends to come together at the very last minute. I think it's just a national trait, um, which is why the Italians are so relaxed about it because they kind of know it will. 
and everyone who isn't from Italy is having a nervous breakdown because they've got no reason to suspect it will. Um, but in, in Mexico, when you get into what you might call the developing world a little bit, I don't want to call Mexico the third world and I don't want to call South America the third world, but it it, it is definitely harder to find stuff in some of those countries, um, especially if it's rarefied, either state-of-the-art or or peculiar antiques like Roland JC-120s. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, got, I found the set list, um, oh. which uh, was quite interesting um, because uh, you're still technically on the Brave Tour, but you opened up with songs before you went into Brave. Yes, we we I think we felt that it might be too big an ask from um people in that part of the world to, to just go wading straight into Brave, you know, in case there was 8,000 people stood there going what the hell's going on here. Yeah. So we thought we'd better rattle through a couple of things that Remind people who we are. Who we are, yeah. First. Um, we, so the question that I've got is, because you mentioned there was no intro tape, but you were expecting an intro tape, and you went straight in to cover my eyes. So can you remember what the intro tape was? Hmm. Hmm. No. No? I mean, I know that... Hang on a bit. I'm getting back to holidays in Eden. Um... It wasn't, was it? It was before that, so it would have been season's end. Well, the intro tape for the season's end tour was actually the intro of King of Sunset King Town. Sunset Town. Um, so Lord knows, Lord knows what I was expecting. Maybe that's why we didn't have one because because <laughs> we didn't have one. <laughs> yeah, because on holidays you didn't have an intro tape either. Because I mean, it was splintering heart, wasn't it? You but, opened with splintering heart. Being an egoistic lead singer, I just assumed one would play when I walked on, you know, uh, but it didn't. What do you mean Chevy Chase isn't isn't introducing me? Yes. Where's the Firebird suite? Where is it? <laughs> so you rattled through Cover My Eyes, Slange, The Uninvited Guest, Sugar Mice. Then you went into Brave. Right. Um, with that huge moment and that wonderful piano call that didn't happen. Um, and then Easter... Warm Wet Circles, That Time of the Night, Kaylee Lavender, Heart of Lothian, Hooks in You, and then The Space at the End. So it's a fair, it's a fair show. It is at that altitude, I tell you. Yeah. Well, I you think f- at any altitude. You feel the difference, actually. You really, f- I mean, I really felt the difference. I was having a whale of a time because it's such a great stage and it's a great room. Uh, that when I, when I, you know, when I was free to stomp about, once we'd got through Brave... Um, I, I could get up to speed, but mm. but uh, I remember being completely wrung out when I when I got off stage because there, there's just not so much oxygen in the air in Mexico no. City. No, that came that came over in the diary. So, last question before we go on to the next day, then um, you the diary reading suggests you came off stage uh, disappointed and exhausted. Um, do you still feel that way now, or was that a reaction of the day um well i i i mean all all i can tell you is how i feel in theory not in practice because it was so long ago that however i felt i wouldn't remember it now um but it's always terribly frustrating if you haven't got the tools to do the job and you've got a lot of people there you want to give them you want to give them the show. You want to give them the best show you can. Um, and sometimes you walk off stage feeling like you didn't because it was your fault. <laughs> and sometimes you feel like you didn't because you couldn't in, because of equipment problems or whatever. Um, and back in those days, of course, we had a manager and we we didn't always have the power to make those decisions ourselves and if the manager turned around and said you can't afford to take your own equipment or there isn't time to ship it or blah 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 you just assumed that was true Mm. at least these days we're hands-on enough to know what's possible and what's impossible and and to know that you're not being given excuses 
you're being, you know, you've got hard facts in front of you and you proceed accordingly. So not being managed helps. When I say managed, I mean in in inverted commas, the, the kind of old school. Yeah. The manager takes care of everything and the band phone him up and go, what's going on? That's how it used to be. And I've said it before, but but I used to drift into sleep every night wondering if, A, our manager had done anything for us that day uh, or whether he'd been playing golf or doing something for someone else and, B, whether the record label had done anything for us that day or, or whether everything they said they would do for us was a load of bullshit and they'd got no intention of doing it, which quite often was the case. Um, so just not knowing and expecting so much from the music business, you know, whilst at the same time having no reason to be certain it would happen, made, made me, well, all of us, made, made us all very insecure as human beings. And, and most artists live like that. Mm. And when we eventually decided we would part company with... Um, with John, and I got a lot of time for John. I really like him, so I, 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 I'm not trying to bad mouth him. But much as I like him, he was a manager in the old school sort of sense, and there was always an element of, oh, don't tell the band; they'll all get hysterical. Tell them this instead, you know. So you'd you'd always get a certain amount of sugar coating on any other facts, which which just made you insecure. Because yeah. you knew it wasn't the whole truth all the time. So even when it was the whole truth, you thought it wasn't. Um, so taking taking things into our own hands, although it was a lot more work and forced us to think about a load of stuff that previously we wouldn't have had to think about, at least when I lie down to sleep at night now, I kind of know what's going on. Yeah what has happened and what hasn't happened. And it's a really good feeling. Well, and, you know, you've only got to go back to where we started the conversation about the convention and the dates and what have you as to, you know, to see how close you are to everything and, and have such a deep understanding and involved in, in all those decisions. Yeah. Uh, you know, which is... Um... Right, so we'll move on to Saturday the 3rd um, and we're going to end up with a... a we're going to end up with, a, let's face it, what sounds like a raucous club gig, um, <laughs> you know, which, which, as it turns out, was the gig that probably you didn't expect to leave Mexico with, but, but absolutely did. Yeah, what happened was that, um, I hope the tax man's not listening, but um, what... what, <laughs> what I think it's over the seven-year rule, you find. It was a long time ago, Um and and what 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 used to happen in Mexico, I think it still happens, is that um, they have a massive withholding tax rate there. So the government takes most of your money when yeah. you do a show. Um, they used to have a tax rule there. I don't know if they still have it, where they tax you also uh, a percentage of the equipment that you bring into the country. So, of course, somebody like Pink Floyd can't afford to play in Mexico because their production is worth zillions of pounds and the Mexican government would want a percentage of its value just for them to bring it in. That's nuts. But that's how it is there. So it's a mad kind of withholding tax situation, which, again, probably goes some way to explaining why we'd hired so much. Because not only would we have the cost of bringing our equipment, but then they'd want to tax us on the value yeah. of it when it came across customs. And then they impound it until you pay up. Um, so it can all end up stuck in a cage somewhere. Um, so that was that was weird. So, so we did this huge gig. We did the National Auditorium. We got 8,000 people in there sold out, all paying what, whatever they were paying, $50 a ticket. And I don't think we made a bean out of it. I think at the end of the day, it was like, thank you very much. Here's the settlement, £4.50. <laughs> um, 
postal <laughs> order it is. <laughs> and you go, what the fuck? Who's had all the money? I mean, we had a good time, but who's had all the money? And then the um, the next day we'd, we'd agreed with this club promoter that we'd go and play, I think it was his first or his 10th anniversary of the club or something. Um, and he wanted to make an occasion of it and he heard that we were going to be in town and so he'd, he'd got in touch and he'd done some kind of deal with John in cash. And so we walked away from that one with carrier bags full of US dollars, um, which turned out to be all the money that we made from going to Mexico. So it all came back in cash. We played a lot of 400 capacity club and earned a fortune and played an 8,000 capacity mega theatre and came out with nothing. So that's rock and roll. Well, let's let's have the diary date and then we'll have a little wrap at the end of that. So Saturday the 3rd of September, on its way. Saturday, 3rd of September, Mexico City, La Diabla. Slept until around nine, which was a major achievement, and woke up feeling like a traffic accident. My head was splitting and my body was aching. Surprisingly, my knee wasn't hurting as much as before. Maybe the impact improved it. I staggered down to breakfast and was joined by Alan P, who looked like I felt. He'd been out abusing himself until the small hours, so unlike me, he deserved it. Periodically, people would come to the table to ask for autographs. I asked everyone if they'd been to the first show two years ago. They all had. I was relieved to hear that, without exception, they all preferred last night's show. I still have trouble believing it, and I wonder what they might have experienced if everything had been working. Maybe it wouldn't have made much difference. I would have been a lot happier, that's for sure. Oh well, there's always next time. Chatted to John for a while. He was saying that if we have the album finished by Christmas, there might still be an argument for coming back to South America in February to perform Brave in Brazil, Chile, Argentina and Venezuela. At one o'clock, we all met up in the lobby for a trip to the markets. We went first to Mercado Insurgente, where I bought myself a silver chain with a little Mayan symbol of a girl in pigtails. She was to become my logo for future solo album Ice Cream Genius, and some more earrings for Sue. Outside, I bought a puppet on strings for Nile. The boys wanted to return to the hotel, so we dropped them off, and Alan, Nick and I went on to the market at Ciudarella chomping our way through a basket of fruit that I'd brought down from my hotel room. At the second market, I found a small silver bangle for Fifi and bought a tambourine to replace the one I'd trashed last night, along with more leather laces for my boots. We returned to the hotel via tonight's venue, La Diabla, to see how things were progressing. When we arrived, it was raining hard. This is the rainy season, and it certainly does. I met our head of security, Soda, who I came to like and respect. He told me he'd arranged a trip to the cinema for a private viewing of the Emacs Rolling Stones movie after sound check. I told him I would like that very much, but after yesterday I wasn't over-optimistic that we would have time. When the rain eased, we drove back through flooded streets to the hotel. I decided to drop into the Hard Rock Hotel for tea. Once again, I was looked after by the staff, many of whom had come to last night's show as our guests. Javier, the owner, came to my table and we chatted about life, England, his wife is from Surrey, Spain, I think he's from Barcelona, and Mexico, and the differences in the people. When I made to leave, he said the meal was complimentary. I don't think I've paid here ever, and asked me if I would like a souvenir. I came away with a denim jacket for Dizzy and a leather waistcoat for me before jumping into the waiting minibus which took me back to the hotel to leave for soundcheck. As we expected, soundcheck was prolonged and noisy. 
things were humming and breaking down. I don't think I ever heard Steve R's amps making more noise while idling. But at least we had time today to get things half sorted. I returned to the hotel and got in the bath to try and soak some of last night's stiffness away. We had decided to get changed at the hotel and go straight on stage. When we returned to the venue, the place was packed. There was a delay before the show as Ian refused to go on stage until he'd had a cup of coffee and no one could organise one. So I sat around strapped up like a footballer for another half hour while they tried to get it together. The show was fun. Security had to make a line through the people so that we could get to the stage. It was exactly like a world title fight, pushing through the outstretched hands as people shouted encouragement and the security men linked arms to keep back the crowd. I got that Chavez feeling without having to climb into a ring and get punched a lot. On stage, the sound was loud and out of control, but I enjoyed the excitement of it. I was taken back to the old days of the Europeans, when gigs like this were the norm, and I could almost smell the sweat of the individual members of the audience. This kind of situation brings out a wilder side of me, which is reflected in the performance. It didn't really come home to me until long after the show that this was to be our last night with the crew before next year. Once again they had slugged and slummed their way through the day and made the best of a tough situation efficiently and with good humour. I will miss them, particularly Priv, who for me has become like that brother you had and loved but never quite got on with because he preferred the company of his mates. After the show, I went back upstairs to chat to Raimondo and Camillo from EMI, two solid and amusing chaps, and sat at a table drinking Coronas, signing autographs and being spoilt until the club closed at 4.30. I got to bed around five, knowing I had to be up at half seven and questioning the wisdom of not just packing and staying up. And we're back again. Um, and Saturday the 3rd of September. And it start. do you know what? In in the kind of, in the mists of time and history, it starts with the big thing because you get the little girl necklace on that day. Yes, I don't even remember that I'd written that down. I'm glad I did. Um, yeah, I, I must have gone out. I went, we went out to a different market to the, to the ones we usually used to visit. And uh, there she was, dangling on a, on a little, you know, black velvet card. And I thought, oh, that looks like me with my hair in pigtails. Hair in pigtails. I thought, I'll have that. Um, so, so I bought that and <coughs> wore it round my neck for years and years and years and years and years, and eventually left it in a hotel room in Stuttgart or somewhere. Um, but fortunately. Um, by then, we were in touch with a girl whose name is going to come to me, Monica Diaz. Um, and she knows where to get them in Mexico. Right. Um, so I sent Mo- Monica a, a, a note going, I've lost my little girl. She went, don't worry, I'll send you another one. And I, I got another one in a little bag. So there we are. Oh, um, we've talked a little bit because I'd written some questions down about about the things we've actually mentioned. So the you know the fairly wild and raucous uh, club gig. You did mention it was a bit like back in being back in the Europeans days. I mean, I saw the first time I ever saw the band was in Rock City in Nottingham, and that's a fairly wild and raucous club gig. <coughs> um, that's a proper old fashioned you stick to the floor type type water gig. That one. Yeah. Um, was it was it sort of similar to that kind of vibe? And because that's not how I think of Marillion, really. But you know, there must be some, quite some excitement about playing that kind of venue. Yeah, it was great. It was great. You know, it was. Uh, it, it it felt like the old, um, you know, the, the pub in Stoke Row. It felt like mm. the first ever gig because the I don't I'm not even sure there was a stage. I think there was just a place where we stood. And all the crowd were like right up against us, um, and it did have a great vibe. 
My enduring memory was mostly refusing to go on stage until someone had made him a cup of coffee. And I did lose my rag with him over that. I don't know if we came to... We, did, we didn't come to blows, but I was so pissed off with him. Because he, he was... I mean, Ian's the loveliest guy, but years ago he was a lot more difficult than he is now. He's so, mm. he's so laid back now. Um, but back then, you know, he could be so stubborn. He'd just go, well, I'm not going on until I've had a cup of coffee. And we were all going, well, it's stage time. Well, I haven't had a cup of coffee and I'm not going on. But we can't make you a cup of coffee, and we're getting changed in this bloody broom cupboard or whatever we were getting changed in. <laughs> so there was, there were not the facilities that you know we were used to, and nobody, no one had a kettle, and no one no. could make Ian no a coffee. No mellow birds, <laughs> and no one could make Ian a coffee, <laughs> even though we wanted to. <laughs> but instead of going, oh, all right, fair enough. He went, well, I'm not going on. And we thought, oh, for fuck's sake. So, so um, that was a bit tense and I, I do remember that. And I remember walking on stage, you had to walk through the crowd. There wasn't mm. a backstage area, so you had to approach the stage from the back of, of the room that we were going to play, which meant the kind of sort of boxing entry with the, with the bouncers holding the people back while you walked through the middle. You know, with the with the spotlight on you and all of that, and people cheering and, and trying to touch you and stuff. Um, that was quite good fun. And the other thing I remember was just the enormous humming sound that Rother's backline was making. <laughs> it was just going, um, and nobody could stop it because, again, you know, it was hired stuff. Um, it was buggered, and I think the mains in the club was perhaps slightly suspect. So so there was a sort of perfect storm of dodgy mains and dodgy gear and his, uh, I've never heard anything like what was coming out of his, his amps. It sounded like a Force 10 gale. Um, I remember that. And you said that it was, it, there was a realisation when you were playing that, um, that that was it for a little while. That whole band of brothers that had come together for the... For the Brave Tour, that was, you know, it was going to be a while before... Because obviously you're going to be straight in writing an album. It's a funny feeling. Um, when you wrap something up that's involved so many people working at a level of intensity, I'm sure anyone in the movie business understands it as well. When you've got a, a, um, a collection of people, of crew and artists, all completely immersed in a project and a common cause for weeks or months and then there's that day where you just go all right we're done bye mm. and if that's it and it, it always feels like something ought to happen um some kind of end of tour party or you know, a do or a, something, some right, like a kind of a rite of passage out of it. Mm. Um, in my experience, that hardly ever happens. Even if we have end of tour parties, which is quite rare, half of the people don't turn up for them for whatever reason because they had to get home or they had to go get onto another tour or they couldn't be asked or they'd rather sit in a in a room with three other people and skin up than be in a big room having a party so so you tend to over the years we've stopped doing things like that because there's kind of no point because there's always half half of the people don't bother showing up mm. um but it does feel weird at the end of months of of working together with people in a common endeavor uh to to just walk away go oh cheers then so, you know, I've found you in a couple of years is a weird feeling. Yeah. Well, yeah, and, and obviously it's a, it's not just it's not just a thing you've been working on. It's a really close, you know, intense relationship because you are with these people 24-7, aren't you? Yeah, quite often you sh we would be sharing a, a tour bus with, mm. with the crew as well. So we would be like a Noah's Ark of mm. animals. Uh, you know, with your head hanging out the porthole, that kind of thing. <laughs> you also mentioned, you mentioned, you put a special note in for Priv. 
But it, but I read it and you kind of made it sound like you two were the the Gallagher brothers, uh, <laughs> the way you kind of put it. We did have a funny relationship, Priv and I. I really like him. Um, I've not seen him for ages. But he's a he's a very nice guy and he's extremely good at what he does. But um, I suppose like anyone who's good at what they do, the reason they're good at what they do is because they really care and they have attention to detail. And that, as- that aspect of their persona makes them difficult. You know, I'm sure I'm the same when I'm working. Um, because I want everything to be right, if it isn't, I get a bit arsy. Um, and Priv was like that. If So... You know, in the hierarchy of things, the artist is supposed to be at the top of the tree. But quite often, they're not. Priv would be telling us to shut the fuck up because he was trying to listen to a hi-hat or something, which which would piss you off a bit. But he was just doing his job. He just wanted everything to be right. Um, But he wasn't the most tactful person. But then neither am I, so... You know, I think we were we were a bit like the Gallagher brothers in that sense. I think it's a lovely, I think it's a lovely image that I really <laughs> like that. Well, with, that's Mexico, and I don't want to get too much into what came next. But you literally um, had a few sherbets that night, uh, got your last bit of kind of adulation, and um, and you know everybody flocking around you, and then buggered off to New York. I then flew to New York straight from there. Everybody else flew back to England. And yours truly went went off to New York to see Tommy. Mm. Well, we'll cover that next week because there's quite a bit of diary on that. So we'll cover that in uh, in the next episode um, because that's quite a story as well. Yeah, sure is. Uh, and then, of course, we're straight into AOS. So there's lots of stuff to come after that as well. So where yeah, should we should we wrap there? Because we've got we've got a, a guest book Q and A to record as well. Whoa. Uh, yes. Yes, I'm happy to rap. I'm happy to say cheerio to all the, um, the listeners. Thanks a lot for listening once again. And um, here comes the Crooncast. Thank you, Angela Camaro. And thank you. As Chris Thank you, Colin Henderson. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Corona Diaries. It featured Steve Hogarth with the insights and me, Ant Short, with the questions. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider subscribing and maybe leaving a review as this will help others find it. You could even share with other like-minded souls, should the mood take you. This has been an A Short Stories production. <laughs>